the Forward Together podcast from Hollywood Trust with Paul Gosling and Jared Dean. Welcome to the Forward Together podcast. My name is Jared Dean and I'm joined as always by Paul Gosling. Paul, how's the form? Excellent as ever, Gerard. Good stuff. Glad to hear it. So, Forward Together is a podcast with a series of um, conversations with people forward-focused conversations, future-focused conversations on a range of issues, including increasing the civic voice, creating a shared and more integrated society, dealing with the past and the constitutional question. So all big questions facing us here in Northern Ireland. So Paul, series of conversations uh, that have been ongoing. This episode you talked with John Kyle. Uh, For those that don't know him, can you give us a wee summary of who John might be or who he is? Yeah, John is a very interesting man. He is a GP and he is the former leader of the Progressive Unionist Party Mm -hmm. and he is still a councillor in Belfast, uh, recently re-elected in fact. And so John is a very interesting voice from the loyalist communities of Belfast. Okay. And... He talked about, as always, as everyone did, a range of issues, but he did say that we already have a vibrant civic society here in Northern Ireland. That's right, yes. Uh, he, he thinks the problem isn't with civil society, it's the fact that the politicians aren't listening to civil society. Okay. He's saying specifically that they are cocooned from uh, listening to civic voices. Right. And he sees social media as a way that people have finally been able to get that voice and, and to be heard by the politicians. Absolutely, and he's not the only person that we've interviewed in this series that, uh, that, that believes that social media plays an important role in bringing through voices that otherwise aren't being listened to sufficiently. Mm. And as a unionist voice, it's very interesting to hear him talking about uh, traditional voting patterns and maybe challenging those. That's right, yeah. It's not what you expect to hear from mm. a loyalist politician. That Actually, he's welcoming the idea that people are voting outside of the traditional blocks of unionism and nationalism. And actually, you know, he's saying that where the constitutional question is not the specific question you're addressing, no. then people should be free and should think flexibly in terms of how they're voting and who they should be voting for. Vote for policies and crazy things like that. Okay. Uh, but he does touch on uh, on a slightly more negative note on the lack of cohesion within the Protestant Unionist Loyalist or PUL areas as well. Yeah, I thought they found that was one of the most interesting parts of the conversation, the fact that, uh, you know, Loyalist communities in Belfast, and no doubt this is true of other parts of Northern Ireland as well, but he's talking specifically about Belfast, their, their traditional cohesion, the unity within those Loyalist communities has broken down. And he, mm. he and we will hear in a moment, he explains partly that's to do with the, the change in working structures but also partly, in his opinion, and particularly as a GP he's speaking here, it, it's the nature of the change of the physical infrastructure of housing, that the, the, the blocks that perhaps were of bad quality have been replaced, but the new housing, and you hear this all over the place, not mm. just in Northern Ireland, that the new housing doesn't create that same sense of identity and cohesion as traditional societies had. And you know that clearly is a problem for loyalist communities, that they don't have that same sense of community that they did at one point. Mm, okay. Well, let's hear that uh, from John now and, and the interview that you had with him. Now joined by John Kyle, uh, Progressive Unionist Party councillor in Belfast. Uh, John, thank you very much for doing this. Uh, head straight into it. How do we strengthen civil society in ways that enable us to make progress, do you think? Well, I think we have a fairly vibrant civil society in Northern Ireland already, uh, but it does seem to be to exist in a parallel world to the political uh, society or the or the uh, the politicians. 
um, which is a problem. Uh, and politicians seem to be able to cocoon themselves away from the views, opinions, advice uh, of civil society. Um, I, I think... Uh, civil society get, gets a strength from the platforms within which it operates. So social media uh, offers civil society in a way to express themselves, to try and influence uh, thinking and, and influence the direction that, that the country is moving in. The media themselves and the the credibility and opportunity that they give to civil society is also a major factor in it. Um, I think you've also got established communities. You've got the faith communities, uh, the churches, um, you've got the, the uh, trade unions. Um, uh, you know, so, so, so there, are, there are various compartments in civil society uh, within which conversations take place. But, the, but politicians do seem to be cocooned or have tin ears when it comes to responding to what broader civil society is saying because it seems to me that there is a huge disparity between what people say they would like to see happen and what politicians are actually doing. So how do we improve that interaction then? Well, uh, I think... That is obviously a difficult question because if it was if there was an easy solution, we would have done it, and we had uh, the forums in the past um, that petered out. And part of the difficulty is that you you get people together to talk and to share and to express their views and to debate um, uh, for a period of time, but eventually the steam runs out of it, uh, and then people just retreat back into their own. Uh, homes and feel disenfranchised and feel uh, alienated. Um, I think that people need to have the courage to vote outside of the traditional patterns of voting, um, particularly in uh, in elections where the constitutional issue is not at stake or is not fundamental to what they're doing. Uh, I think we need to realise that we need a broader political representation and people who feel exasperated with with the uh, politicians who currently hold power, yet they, they tend to go back and still vote for them at the next election. So people need to have the courage. We need to start, I think, a um, a narrative which 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 challenges people to think outside of their traditional habits. Because uh, someone said to me, voting is a habit. I think that's right. People tend to vote for the way they've always voted. So we need to begin to challenge that. And when we meet together and discuss things, uh, uh, civil society needs to reflect on the fact that those politicians are in power because they voted for them. So there's also a, a sense of uh, within, within civil society of people wanting something different, yet they keep on doing the same thing. So there's a challenge for both. The, the, but politicians clearly are not listening. And politicians being politicians, they will not listen until it hurts them at, at the polling booth, uh, at the ballot box. So, so you know, we can't expect things to change really until it begins to affect who gets elected. And that's why I think people need to stand back, reconsider who they vote for, um, uh, and begin to break some old habits. And do you think we can learn anything from the fact that the citizens' assemblies in the South seem to be 
have, have got, gained a lot of respect and influence, whereas the Civic Forum in the North collapsed? Well, of course, we had our, our uh, constitutional differences in the North, and perhaps the Civic Forum was overtaken by um, the developments at Stormont, which were full of potential, very promising, um, uh, contentious, but there was a real sense of momentum there, and I can understand, therefore, why uh, Civil Forum, Civic Forum would peter out. The situation in the South is interesting, and I think we would benefit if we were able to have some adapted version in Northern Ireland. Um, uh, and I think there are people around who would be willing to engage in it, uh, who would feel that they want to express their views, that they want to influence the debate, that they want to challenge some of the more accepted social mores, that they want to move things in a new direction, but more particularly that, that they want to look to the future, that they want something different. I think if you want to create something different, you've got to create the, the environment, the, the circumstances, the conditions in which something different can emerge. At the moment, we are stuck in ruts and so, so we need to shake things up, create some new opportunities for people to debate, to meet, to argue, to make decisions, to plan, to take initiatives. Uh, and I think, I think we, will, we are going to have to create those opportunities. Otherwise, if, if politicians' position of power is not under threat, they are happy to just let things continue to trundle on. Uh, one suggestion that was made was that uh, citizens' assemblies might be a good approach to in, in very micro situations. So where you've got a community interface, where you've got problems, that. So on a very localised neighbourhood area, you might have a citizens' assembly to address problems. Is that something that would be attractive to you? Um, I think the difficulty is that uh, there's a lot of apathy around. Um, and my experience of trying to... Uh, organised public meetings is that people, by and large, don't turn up. Unless they're really angry about something, in which case they'll come in their droves. But if they're not angry, if it's not particularly impacting their daily life, then they may well think it's a good idea, but they don't usually come to those meetings. So that's a challenge. Um, uh, I think the nationalist community are more, tend to be more active on a community level than the unionist uh, population. Uh, and, uh, you know, we could debate and discuss why that is. But certainly uh, within unionist communities, um, when I have tried to uh, organise public event, public meetings to discuss problems, issues, the future, uh, I will get some very committed enthusiasts, but in terms of large numbers, it just doesn't happen. And why do you think that is, that there's that lack of engagement with unionists and loyalist communities? Well, I suppose the unionist uh, political ideology and culture is quite an individualistic one, you know, the the idea that, that you're responsible for your future, that you, if you work hard and uh, pay your taxes, that's the way forward. The, the sense of belonging to a community, being part of a broader network of relationships, that isn't as strong in a unionist Protestant area as it would be, I think, in the 
uh, in a Catholic and nationalist area. I mean, I personally think that part of it goes back to the our um, church philosophies or the 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 the. Um, the, the Christian culture that we come from. I think the Catholic Church is much more communitarian than the Protestant Church. Um, I think the Protestant Church is probably more entrepreneurial than the than the Catholic Church, uh, more innovative, but it doesn't cr- create that cohesive sense of community. Um, and I think that is weak in unionist areas. And in order to try and build up this sense of uh, citizens' uh, uh, assemblies. Um, I think that we would have to do quite a bit of work to encourage people to th- to see that there actually is benefit in it. But if you go back a few decades, the, the Labour Party was strong in Northern Ireland, and presumably the trade union movement would have been strong within unionist communities yes. in East Belfast. So, yes. so what changed that within the working class communities? Well, I think the loss of heavy industry, the uh, the shrinking of uh, the unions. Um, and I think also the fact that the constitutional issue was so front and centre throughout the uh, 60s, 70s, 80s, 90s and 2000s. But I'm thinking more in terms of that was a collective approach. Yeah. And so that's, that's sort of a different mindset from the one you're talking about today. Yes, well... And I suppose if you've got smaller workplaces, that does help to explain it. That, that undermines yeah. the trade union movement, but also undermines the sense of collective solidarity in other senses as well. Yes, it does. I mean, smaller workplaces, uh, smaller communities, you know, there are urban planning uh, broke up a lot of the very densely knit communities and people's... Uh, you know, capacity to nip in next door and get a pint of milk, or they go and look for the kids down the street. You know, that I think diminished with the the changes. As I mean, we had terrible housing. Uh, you know, when I was a young GP working in East Belfast, some of the housing was appalling. So we needed to to do something about that. But in removing that and then and in building a new uh, housing stock, I think that sense of community was fundamentally undermined. So that takes us on to the next point, which is how do we move towards a more shared and integrated society across the community divide? Uh, And that is, I think, a burning question for us today because, in my view, we have lost ground in the past 20 years. Um, I uh, uh, I think there were... My reading of it is that there is that there were two important, maybe three important elements to the progress that we made. Um, uh, the first important element was that uh, violence was shown to fail. It was a flawed strategy. Um, it didn't achieve its ends. Uh, and people got a certain age where they where they thought, look, we have suffered, we have paid a price. Uh, what have we gained? It's very modest. Do we want our children to go through this? Sure as hell we don't. And I think that was one factor that brought about change. I think the second factor was that I think the churches got their act together. The sort of preaching against one another and, uh, you know, 
calling one another anathema. I think that suddenly changed. And, and the churches realized, you know, we have a responsibility to love our brother. Why we may disagree with them, we may disagree strongly and, and, and vigorously with them. We have got to show respect and love to our brother. Uh, and I think the church leadership... Uh, well, it probably was a grassroots movement, but I think that there was a movement within the churches to say, hey, this is no way for us to behave. If we believe the book, then we need to behave in a different way. And I think that there was remarkable uh, coming together between the Catholic and Protestant traditions, not, in, not involving everyone, but involving a vast majority of influential and leading people and many congregations. I suppose you could point to the Fitzroy Clonard group as a very good example of that. So, so, so the so the, the theological justification was suddenly removed from the conflict. And then I think the third aspect was that was that uh, particularly within those classes, the, the, the middle classes in Northern Ireland who tr- who were able to travel more. I mean, I remember the first time, I was the first person in my family ever to travel to the United States of America. It was a big deal in those days as a young student. Nowadays, people travel to America, you know, 10 times a year. So, so living in this more mobile society, a more cosmopolitan, more international society, I think many of uh, the sort of uh, middle classes who had had the who had had loads of opportunities that, that their parents had hadn't had realized that there's a bigger perspective to the world than just our entrenched um, you know cultural differences here in Northern Ireland uh, and, and, and can we not find another way to make a success of this country rather than fighting each other or rather than bad mouthing each other or rather than uh, diminishing and demeaning one another, and I think that that sort of more, more uh, uh, international sense uh, within the middle classes also then ameliorated a lot of the animosity between the two traditions. But the ending of violence doesn't itself uh, does not in itself create a cohesive society, does it? No. We are, we are, no. We're not there in terms of cohesion or sharing or integration. Uh, and I think that we made progress with the Good Friday Agreement. People had a sense of hope. They said, "Hey, we can do this." And there was there was a real sense of you. Know, this has been a monumental step forward. This opens up new opportunities. Let's build on this and let's capitalise on this. Um, but. You know, our, uh, um, some things happened, I think, that undermined trust. Uh, there still was a huge reservoir of hurt uh, where people had been damaged and suffered uh, and that, that reservoir of suffering was not really being properly addressed. Um, and, and I think that, that, you know, the, rec- the realisation that the politicians came to that by playing the populist card, by blaming the other, you often will increase your vote. And, uh, and I think that that, 
you know, what we see more broadly now in Western society, sort of more a more florid form of that. I think I think you know our politicians were guilty of playing that card, and that while that may produce short-term gain in terms of political uh, wins, it does ultimately end up in long-term damage to the community. And I think our politicians need to man up to that and recognise that they have. Uh, that they bear a significant responsibility for the ground that we have lost in the past 10 to 15 years. Quite a number of people are saying that we are not able to create a, 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 more, a more shared society with, without dealing with the past in a way that's better than we have done recently. So, I mean, how, how should we be dealing with the past in ways that take us yeah. forward, not back, and, all, and, and to what extent can we achieve reconciliation through that process? Well, um, I, I think that is a huge issue. I think that you have to deal with the past in some way, but you not, must not be ensnared by it. Uh, uh, and I do, uh, you know, I, Colin Davidson has done some remarkable work in terms of victims and survivors. And the, one of the things that Colin says is that most of the people that he's worked with, what they're looking for is an acknowledgement of their suffering. Now, I, I personally have not lost anybody. I did not lose anybody in the conflict. I knew people, I had friends, but I didn't have anyone close to me that I lost. So I realize that I have to tread warily here. But I think that we have, uh, we have failed to acknowledge the suffering and loss adequately of of the people who have lost and who have suffered. Um, I think secondly we still struggle in terms of blame and recognition. Who is at fault, who is to blame and how we uh, and how we interpret the past and we've got different interpretations and those interpretations are often in conflict and often painfully in conflict for the people who were involved. Uh, and uh, I mean, I, my, my understanding is that is that during the negotiations behind the Good Friday or Belfast Agreement, that George, one of the first things George Mitchell did was to take the politicians out of the current situation here, take them away, and enable them to relate to one another as human beings. And I think that we have, I think there's a huge need for us still to do that, to relate to one another as human beings, not as political opponents or as the other side or as the enemy uh, or as the cause of, of my suffering. Um, I think that we need to find new contexts to enable people to talk together. I know that there have been loads of very noble and very worthwhile initiatives uh, in the past, healing through remembering you, uh, uh, the wave organisation, but there's just there is an ongoing need for that, and particularly for some of the people who are most who, uh, who have suffered the most and who perhaps have not received the support, the recognition, the help that they deserve and need. I think there needs to be a refocusing on that to help them. And part of the difficulty, of course, as we all know, is that where politicians differ and disagree, then, then, you know, constituents or the people in the community suffer. And I think our politicians' failure to find some way forward in dealing with the past has has exacerbated the suffering of victims and survivors. So when so and the, at the present time, there is no. Uh, there is there is neither a carrot or a stick 
to get politicians to begin to tackle this properly. There's there's nothing uh, uh, for them for them to gain by doing it. Uh, and furthermore, there is no uh, punishment for them not doing it. No, they, they, you know, they, they do not get sanctioned for not for not addressing the past. And I think that is a highly unsatisfactory state of affairs. But when it came to the Good Friday Agreement, it, or the Belfast Agreement, uh, politically sensitive terms, that it only happened because. Uh, the, because the Irish government, the British government, the uh, President of the United States, uh, uh, other influential bodies exerted enormous pressure on the politicians. George Mitchell set the deadline. I'm, I'm out of here by this date. If it's not settled, that's the end of it. And at, at the present point in time, there is no pressure. There's, uh, there is nothing that would... Uh, uh, impel politicians to tackle what is a difficult and thorny and politically sensitive issue, but there's simply no pressure on them. Um, and I think that 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 the, I think the British government have been negligent and irresponsible in their approach to it. I think the Irish government could have done more. I think the North. I think we've got a completely different situation in the United States of America, and their capacity to be constructive, I think, is minimal at the present point in time. So, so therefore, we are in a difficult situation, and one can. I cannot see any short-term change. Uh, short-term resolution uh, of this difficult problem. Uh, I suppose there's an onus on all of us, I think, to respond to Colin Davidson's comments and say we need to at least start to acknowledge what we did to each other, the suffering that we all have a responsibility for, uh, and we need to be we need to create the vehicles where we can more actively acknowledge and recognise what took place here. Um, and I think for the younger generation, uh, you know, those who were born after 1995, they need to be educated in it. And I think that 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 our education system, our schools, and our churches need to see that that actually we need to begin to educate folks as to what happened, uh, and make them aware of how things improve, but what is yet to take place. But also to teach people in ways that aren't abstract, because what Colin Davidson has done is to show the personal face of, of the, the pain of the troubles, the, 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 yes. the, the physically injured bodies. Yes. And the point that has been made to me is that that in a way is what needs to be taught in school, not simply the broader politics and the broader numbers, but actually the personal stories, but also to do so in ways that show that there's a shared experience there in terms of the pain and the suffering and the loss, rather than to set people against each other. Yes. Yes, absolutely. I absolutely agree. And, uh, I mean, we need leadership. Actually, I mean, the problem is that we're not getting leadership from our politicians. So so other people need to step up, up and show leadership. And, I mean, I think our church leaders could do it. Um, but I think that they're not doing it at the present time. Um, I think that our trade unionists could do it. I think our business leaders could do it. Um, I, I think that our... Um, 
that you are artists, uh, you know, the, the, the people in the creative industries, they can also contribute. I mean, there are people who are uh, making a difference, who are showing leadership, um, but there are too few of them. Uh, and I think that... I, I, I think that um, people perhaps don't realise that they can do it. Actually, that there is a vacuum of leadership and, and it just takes some people to step forward and, and to do it and to show leadership and to begin to say, you know, th- this situation is unacceptable. You know, this behaviour is inappropriate. Um, th- th- this is something that we need to be moving toward as a society and be prepared to take the brickbats and the criticism and the ridicule for doing it. But I think that we need, that we need people to do it. Now, clearly, dealing with the past is is extremely contentious, but the other issue which is extremely contentious is the constitutional conversation. How do you think we can have that conversation in ways that is not threatening and that does not ramp up the emotions and tensions? Well, I don't think we can do it if there's a border pole on the horizon. I think that completely undermines any sort of uh, rational, thoughtful, reflective debate about the constitutional issue. Uh, People are immediately defensive, insecure, feel threatened, and then become aggressive. Um, uh, My my personal view is that uh, Brexit has shown us that any sort of a referendum where you have 51% against 49% is a recipe for disaster. It may have a certain democratic legitimacy, but it causes social turmoil and enormous uh, collateral damage. Um, and I, uh, so, I think, in the, if I'm not mistaken, in the past, for s- certain constitutional issues, you needed to have a two-thirds majority, or you know, to, to change a, a constitution, you needed to have a a significant majority in favour of any fundamental change and I think uh, I, I think that is that would be necessary now I realise in saying that that I am a unionist and I am supporting the status quo but I suppose I would say in my defence that actually I think that this is a this is a country in transition I think that the post uh, Good Friday Agreement Northern Ireland is a different animal to the pre Good Friday Agreement Northern Ireland. It, there was a fundamental change. It was a country that was evolving and developing. Uh, I think that uh, the concept of of being able to be live here comfortably being British and live here comfortably being Irish is what we're aiming for. Now, obviously, uh, there's still. Uh, at the end of the day, the country falls under the jurisdiction of either United Kingdom or Ireland. But but I think that we need to find a matrix within which both identities can grow uh, and which we can share and work together uh, and we can have a Northern Ireland or identity, although I know even that term has now become very politically sensitive, but we can have an identity of people here of the the six counties or of Ulster, that there can be an identity, a unitary uh, con- uh, construct here that people can be a part of while having another allegiance to a greater constitutional uh, entity. 
The problem with what you're saying is that that would require the rewriting of the Good Friday Agreement, because the Good Friday Agreement's clear. It's a simple majority. Yes, but the, but the Good Friday Agreement was never a finished work. It was a brilliant construct, but, but it was an agreement. Uh, you know, I mean, uh, and I think agreement is a, is a very appropriate word for it. We had reached something that we could agree on, but it was not never intended to be the finished article or to be set in stone for all time. Uh, so, so we are in an evolving, developing situation, and the, and hence the the importance, hence the vital importance that politicians see that that this political construct that we live in, this entity, is vulnerable, uh, is fragile, needs to be nurtured, needs to be cherished, needs to be protected, needs to be treated with respect, needs to be allowed to grow and evolve. We need to allow one another to engage, to debate, to find a way forward. Uh, and I mean, I mean, you know, the, in, the, in, the broad, in the 21st century world, at least in the twen- toward the end of the 20th century, national identities were becoming weaker. You know, the, 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 the European Union was becoming more and more of, of something that people felt they belonged to. Um, they felt less entrenched as an Englishman. Uh, many people, shall I say, felt less entrenched as an Englishman, an Irishman. Uh, you know, the, 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 there was that sense of, uh, I'm a citizen of everywhere. You know, there was that, that, that cosmopolitan... Uh, in Dublin, particularly, you know, people had a sense of being European. Uh, you know, and the, in the famous words of John Hewitt, uh, you know, I'm a, I'm a, uh, I'm, I'm a Britishman, I'm an Irishman, I'm an Ulsterman, I'm a Belfastman. You know, I'm a European, um, and of course. You know, there are obvious, obviously there are caveats and conditions and qualifications to that, but I do think that trenchant, strong, exclusive nationalism, I think, is a very dangerous and difficult uh, philosophy or approach. But the problem with what you're saying is that an Irish nationalist would respond, well, at the point at which unionism can see that it loses the simple majority, tries to change the, the requirement, mm-hmm. the goalposts. Yeah. And how, how, in your view, should the Good Friday Agreement be replaced um, or, or amended to, to reflect the, uh, what you see as, as, as the preference for not a simple majority, but a loaded majority, plus other changes? What would those other changes be? Well, uh, better brains than mine have struggled with this. I've not come up with a clear answer, and I wouldn't in any sense uh, claim to have an answer to that very difficult question. I think, I think we need time, basically, to be honest. I think we need some time to get to sit down together and begin to create some sort of peaceful, constructive relationship. So a timeout, I think, is necessary. Um, uh, secondly, I think that the uh, political structures were changed at, at, at St Andrews, uh, and I think those changes were unhelpful. I think the, the present way that that, that the that the uh, our political institutions are set up is a recipe to reinforce 
sectarian divisions. I think that needs to be changed. The problem is I do not believe that we can do it ourselves. We would never have achieved the Good Friday Agreement ourselves. We needed outside help. Uh, and uh, I think that is as true today as it ever was. And of course, those who are, who are in the seat of power don't want outside help. They want to maintain their, their power and influence. So, uh, so, so, they, so the DUP and Sinn Féin will say, no, we don't, we don't necessarily need any help. We need to work it out together. We just need to do this together. But, but that will not happen, in my view. So we do need help from, uh, from outside. I think George Mitchell did a remarkable job. I think we owe him an enormous debt of gratitude. It wasn't him alone, but I think that he was a very skillful negotiator and a very patient man and a, and a man with great vision. I think we need people like that again to help us. John Carl, thank you very much indeed. You're welcome. Okay, interesting, really interesting there from uh, John. So Paul, John was talking about a few things that he feels as though contributed towards, uh, or big steps towards creating peace here. Yeah, and I think that's, uh, I mean, I've not really heard people talking that way before. Uh, no one I've interviewed has spoken in, in quite that way before. Mm. And I thought that was really very interesting. I mean, he's suggesting that the troubles were ended by, by, by three factors. Firstly, obviously, the sense that people recognised that violence wasn't working and wasn't yeah. going to work. So that was the first point. The second, he, he gives credit to the churches moving away from antipathy towards working together and, and, and building a collective spirit of unity across the religious divide as it would have been previously. And the third thing he sees is you know, a, a more middle-class Northern Ireland with more people with a bit of affluence behind them learning to travel for the first time and, and getting a better sense of perspective about mm. what our place is like here, you know? Yeah, our place on the world stuff. Mm. Okay. But, find it really interesting too that he was talking about putting the personal face to the troubles and he talked about the work of Colin Davidson in that regard and George Mitchell too. That's right, exactly. Um, I mean, his view is that Colin Davidson has done a marvellous job in, in, in making personal the victims, but also that George Mitchell has done a marvellous job in, in making personal the politicians. Hmm. And and perhaps, you know, that is the key to, to unlocking the future is if we can all see each other as, as people rather than representatives of a particular tradition or community, hmm. then actually perhaps that helps us make progress but I mean I think it is a very very important point and one that you know that the Hollywood Trust has done a lot of work on is actually recognising the pain of the people who are the victims uh, both the individuals who've suffered horrendous injuries but also the, the, the people left behind afterwards and we must not forget those people. Mm, okay yeah very strong there and I suppose uh, John touches as most people do on leadership with border polls and Brexit yeah and here in a sense this is the the voice you're not surprised to hear from a loyalist yeah. politician that he doesn't believe that this is the right time for a border poll he believes that creates an opportunity for the new division and actually this is the right time for us to have sensible grown up conversations rather than sending ourselves into perhaps a referendum where you have a divided outcome after a divided discussion mm. and you know he, he warns about you know let's learn the lessons from Brexit and as I say you know as you'd expect to hear from a loyalist politician. Aye. No border poll, please. Aye. Okay. That's it for 
this episode of the Future Together podcast. Thanks to Paul and thanks to Emer Doherty and Jacqueline McKay for production support. You can see or find future episodes of their podcast through hollywoodtrust.com, sloggerotool.com or wherever you get your podcasts. Okay, thanks for listening. The Community Relations Council for Northern Ireland supports this podcast through its media grant scheme and core funding programme. 